session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakou, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra on Instagram Live for the show, so I'm not taking calls, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let's get to the books of the week. Uh, the book of the week for this week is The School of Life by Alan de Baton. I usually have the book. This one appears to be arriving late. So I, if I don't have it by tomorrow, I'll pick another book. But I really wanted to read this book, uh, The School of Life, Alan de Baton, uh, recommended by Chrissy. Thank you for that recommendation. Um, and uh, you can see a lot of his talks on Instagram, uh, on YouTube, School of Life, which I think are very, very interesting. Um, but the book of the week for tonight, uh, from last week that I'll talk about tonight, is The Black Banners Declassified by Ali Soufan. The Black Banners Declassified, How D- Torture Derailed the War on Terror After 9-11. And um, this was a, a really fascinating read. Uh, Ali Soufan was a member of the FBI and was involved in some very, very important um, interrogations when it came to terror, especially related to Al-Qaeda in the 90s and 2000s. And this book, um, I was actually very lucky that I got this book this year, but earlier when he'd written the book back in, I believe, 2011, um, the CIA had redacted many parts of the book which made it a lot harder to read or a lot of the information really could not be released. But recently, the CIA um, took back those redactions, so essentially allowed for uh, Ali Soufan to to share in this book what he talks about as the truth of what happened uh, in the interrogations uh, on and around 9-11, that it really was interesting for me from just as an American, as a human, but also as a psychologist to see what he described in this book, what worked and what didn't work, and um, how that affected how things played out. So the book also does a great job detailing Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda as it was um, forming Osama bin Laden and all the other individuals who were involved and the development of that. And of course, we might think, well, it starts in the 90s or the late 90s, but really, as he says, it goes back to 1979, where so much was going on in the Middle East, including, for um, Iranians listening to the show, of course, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, and how all of this had and played a big part in contributing to the unrest and the circumstances that allowed for uh, al-Qaeda to develop. And so for me, that was quite interesting, a very detailed history of that. But getting into the interrogations, um, what uh, Ali Soufan really, uh, he's a Lebanese American, and he spoke Arabic, and that was very helpful. And he's very knowledgeable about the Middle East and um, about a lot of what was going on that might have contributed to what was happening. And he used all of that to guide him or at least aid him in the way he interrogated 
these supposed and sometimes confirmed terrorists to get information out of them um, by creating relationships with them, building rapport, communicating with them, but not that he was doing it in some soft way. What, what I thought was interesting from a psychological perspective, seeing how he would mix kindness and warmth at times with these individuals, but he also knew when to assert himself and make sure they knew um, who was boss. So when you look at his way of interrogating versus what came to be known as uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, which essentially is torture, that was used um, by the CIA uh, around this time as well that he talks about. It's not that what he's doing is soft, but it's definitely, to me, much more precise and wise, and I'll talk a bit about that later on. But he was able to connect with the terrorists and the, the people who had information, and through that to get information out of them. And really, that's what we see, whether it's, we're talking about international level, but even uh, on a local level, that using aggression and trying to uh, hurt the person until they tell you what you want to hear uh, doesn't really work. And actually, uh, it does exactly that. It just gets you what you want to hear, not actually the truth. Uh, and that also came up as the CIA started using torture to try to get information from terrorists. It wasn't that they were getting unique, actionable intelligence. They were sometimes getting nonsense and being misled very strongly. And so um, what we see in this book, as Ali Sufan outlines his uh, interrogations and the success he was able to have using his technique, which both gathers more information and also is more humane. Uh, I think we have to be aware of when we debase ourselves anytime we disrespect someone else. We might think it's about them, but it also reflects something about us. And as he talks about, that's not American. It goes against things like the Geneva Convention. Um, it also doesn't help our cause long term as long as uh, as well as also short term. Um, but he outlines that very well in this book that we might think we're helping, but we're really hurting by doing that. And so he interrogated many individuals and he outlines those in detail, which is quite fascinating to see the conversations he has, the little even jokes or humor that might play out. And he's very good and gifted at finding the right way to connect with each individual. As he shares, I think somewhere at the end of the book, if you're trying to teach someone or talk to someone about dating and you just told them to say the same thing to every person, that doesn't work. You can't just have a script. You're connecting with that individual. And so we see how Ali Sufan using his knowledge of the individuals, using his knowledge of the situation and circumstances, playing his cards very well, at times sharing what he knows about the person and things that the person might realize, oh, that means he knows about what I'm going to tell him, and using that information to make the person feel like they're just sharing what he already knows. Um, he talks about how, well, sometimes they would share something that was a big deal, but if you responded too strongly that this was a big deal, the information he was getting, it would likely make the person change or close up or uh, affect the way they responded. So sometimes they were sharing some very pivotal information, but he acted almost as if he already knew what they were telling him because he knew that might change the, the direction of the interrogation. But so he was part of the FBI and he does share this 
uh, interagency type of dynamic that plays out with the CIA, where they started to come in and wanted to take over the um, interrogations after 9-11 especially. Now, um, of course, the terrorists are the bad guys in this book and in reality, but uh, there's two other individuals who, for me personally, you could see as bad guys that was uh, almost embarrassing to see, and those are the two psychologists who came in and essentially convinced the CIA that they knew how to break the terrorists. They knew how to get into these people's heads, break them down, um, and using techniques, and they claim to be scientific, to essentially torture them um, to try to create uh, you know, the role of we're going to take away all their power, we're going to make one interrogator seem like the person's god and they have control over them, doing things like stripping them naked, playing loud music to do sleep deprivation. Of course, we've all heard about waterboarding that was also introduced during this time. Um, and we really see an instance of individuals who are arrogant and think they know more than they do know, and especially think that because they are an expert, so to speak, in a field, they can apply that to some area they've never done work in, because these two psychologists had never interrogated anyone, period, let alone interrogated someone who was a terrorist um, uh, or really knew much about the organization, and they just assumed that they had created this program that was going to get all the information that they needed and wanted and was going to work and they were so assured of that uh, and as it actually puts it one of them was very arrogant the other one was very angry and had a short temper and that's a very bad combination and I would agree and so they came in uh, essentially assuring that this was going to work and that's when the interrogations very quickly changed, although he was resisting and you see that process of sometimes he would still go in and be allowed to do the interrogations. Even at one point later in the book, he was given 45 minutes each with two terrorists and actually was able to get some information even in 45 minutes when essentially they were setting him up to fail to expecting that they can at least say, well, uh, we let him try, but he actually succeeded in that 45 minutes, but didn't get more time. Um, and sadly, we see a huge shift in the way that the interrogations went and how well they were able to gather evidence with the CIA coming in thinking that we have this better way. Now, before I get more into that, when I look at this dynamic, and we've seen it play out uh, on the political sphere, that when we talk about how we are going to treat terrorists to get information out of them, our main motivation should be getting actionable evidence information that will help save lives and also help convict those who have taken lives or hurt others. That should be our motivation. Unfortunately, many people approach it with the mindset or what they might not realize is their anger towards the individuals is fueling their decisions. So essentially you say, what should we do to get information from these terrorists, from these individuals we suspect to know these things. And because of that anger, and almost at times it's been shown as a sign of patriotism, people talk about, well, we torture them, do whatever you want to them, hurt them, they deserve it. And so that's the anger, which is understandable, but that anger doesn't help us in saving lives. It's actually not helping us to get 
actionable uh, information. Essentially, what it does and what he talks about in this book is people will say what they think you want to hear just to get you to stop torturing them. So oftentimes, some of the fake information and even the information, for example, that might have been used to link um, Saddam Hussein to 9-11, which could have led to the Iraq War, um, talk of the weapons of mass destruction and how there was a link between al-Qaeda and um, Iraq, very likely came from these interrogations that were really torture, where people just said something just to make the torture stop, not to actually give information that was helpful. And this is really heartbreaking. So fueled by this anger, we are making bad decisions because it doesn't matter. And actually, it's not that Ali Sufan loved the terrorists so much so he didn't want to torture them. He knew that this wasn't the right way to get good information to save lives. So he chose these other techniques. So when I see what he's doing, I don't see it's coming from care and compassion for these people that are killing people. It's coming for care and compassion for those lives who have not been lost to help save them and also to try to get justice for those that, that have been lost. So he's letting his love for the people override the anger that he has, which you feel throughout the book as well. He has anger and he even talks about how it can be tough to smile and joke at times with these people in order to build a rapport and then get the information, but that he's essentially in that way willing to do whatever it takes to make that information come to light to then save lives. So he's not trying to be kind to them. He's trying to be kind and loving to saving lives and putting country and people before um, whatever his feelings are in the moment. It reminds me of, I thought of this analogy of if you had a brain tumor, of course, you're so angry at that tumor in your head, uh, but you wouldn't want your doctor just to show up and try to squish your head or use a gun to shoot the tumor because you're so angry at it. Do whatever you want to this tumor because that would hurt you, potentially kill you as well. You would want the surgeon to be precise, to go in with a wise plan to help remove the tumor, but also protect you and take care of you as well. And so what I see is that the way Ali Sufan was working was like a surgeon being precise, being wise. Of course, he was angry. He wanted to save lives, but using that to fuel him rather than the anger towards the terrorists that was being used by the CIA. So what we saw happen was the CIA was using these EITs, um, enhanced interrogation techniques, which is essentially code for torture, and they were not getting good evidence, but they actually were manipulating the way information was being released to make it appear that some of the plots that were being disrupted and some of the information that was being gained from these individuals was because of the enhanced interrogation techniques when in fact it wasn't. And that was something he shares in his book. Sometimes it was information he had gained through the interrogations he was doing, but then it was being attributed to the enhanced interrogation techniques, which is untrue and very unfair. And of course, the CIA was trying to justify the torture that they were doing, because of course, if we're doing this torture, it better be for a good reason. So they're saying waterboarding after, you know, a few seconds, I think Lindsey Graham, after 20 seconds, he shared some report with Ali Soufan, I think when he was testifying uh, to Senate committee saying, well, I heard that after he um, waterboarded 
um, I think it was KSM, he started talking. And he said, no, th- you know, that wasn't true. When you look at really what happened, it wasn't from the waterboarding. So, yes, you're angry at them, understandably so. But by torturing them, you're not going to get better information. Not only that, um, as he, he talked about, I think it was in an interview I saw of him, Ali Svan was talking about how what we saw in Iraq in Abu Ghraib where the American soldiers were torturing, humiliating the uh, prisoners there, and then some pictures were leaked. He was saying that did more to recruit terrorists to then hate America and, and take action against us than anything that Osama bin Laden or anyone else can do to try to recruit people. We made people hate America even more. So not only did we not help our cause in getting information, we probably hurt it long term as well. And, and so to me, this book was very fascinating read, of course, very dark when you're talking about uh, torture and um, even terror. And, you know, he shares a lot of stories of very, you know, the USS Cole and other bombings and things that happened. And of course, 9-11 um, and how heartbreaking he lost friends in 9-11, including one of his mentors. I hope I'm saying the name right, John O'Neill. Um, and he shares how heartbroken he was. But I really respected that uh, Ali Sufan worked harder and smarter, didn't just let his emotions get the better of him. And we also see the heartbreaking and very sad and unethical way that the CIA was working and working to cover up what they were in fact really doing and how what they were doing was not helping the situation, was not getting good information at all, um, but continued doing it. And then I think in order to cover that up, continued to make it seem like it was working when in fact it was not. It was just torturing individuals, getting bad information, not getting good information, but they had to try to justify it, even though what's what's surprising is decades earlier testimony that um, was done showed that using torture does not get good information, as was used, I believe, in South America and other areas. So um, the book does a great job of really showing us how when we want to do something right, we have to be wise. Um, also, as I said, the two psychologists, we have to be aware that when we don't have any experience in a certain area, we have to be humble. Unfortunately, sometimes the loudest voices are not the smartest voices. They're just the most arrogant voices. And I think that was the case there. And the CIA was likely desperate looking for new means of trying to um, get information. After 9-11, we can remember how desperate and angry everyone was because of what had happened. Um, But I think they made some unwise choices. But this book does a great job of setting the record straight. So I hope everyone will read the book or at least see Ali Sufan in his interviews that he gives that you can better understand what happened. Um, You know, we can only learn from history if we actually look at the accurate picture of what happened and know what happened. And he does a great job in this book, The Black Banners Declassified, How Torture Derailed the War on Terror After 9-11. I hope you will read it. Uh, I'm glad I did. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, The Black Banners Declassified, How Torture Derailed the War on Terror After 9-11 by Ali Soufan. And uh, again, highly recommend it. I hope you'll check it out. I mentioned this to the listeners on Instagram during the break. Uh, there was a movie called uh, The Report 
on Amazon, which actually talks about a lot of these issues. And Ali Sufan was in the book or he was or in the movie or someone played him in the movie. Uh, and everything I saw, I, I text, I sent him a tweet and he re- kindly responded. I think he said something like, I think they did a good job. It was very short. So I don't want you to think that he uh, gave me a long um, approval of the movie, but he did say he thought they did a good job very briefly. So I, I recommend checking that out. Uh, I did want to talk about my own experience. I've never shared this on the air, um, that I was in New York on 9-11 back uh, in 2001. So I'm going to share some of that story and also um, it somehow relates to to this book in a, an indirect way. So I'll talk about that uh, in the next segment. So um, back in 2001, my brother and cousin wanted to, uh, really it was my brother was the one that planned it to go to New York for a trip in September uh, to see a Michael Jackson concert. He was doing a few shows, I think two shows, to get a few segments to put on the air. And it was the first time he had been in concert in a long time. So um, my brother got some tickets and it worked out that my cousin Pedram and myself uh, could go. So the three of us went to New York. It was going to be a short trip for about four or five days, not even, I think, four days in New York. Um, The concert was September 10th. We were going to come back on September 11th was our flight, leaving from New York back to Los Angeles. And so um, we were there, had a good time for those few days that we were there. Not only were we in New York, our hotel was one block away from the World Trade Center, uh, one New York City block. So it was pretty, you know, still some space, but we were one block away from the World Trade Center. And I remember maybe two or three days before 9-11, one of the first nights we arrived. I mean, it's almost sad, you know, it's interesting that even for buildings, we can have an emotional feeling. I, I think when you see the Twin Towers, it can bring up feelings and it does for me. But I remember we went, we arrived and we were thirsty. So we walked down the block and the gift shop or like the drugstore at the bottom of the World Trade Center was still open. So we went and got some waters and a few snacks, um, to go back to our hotel room. We were there for a few days. We had a good trip. Uh, and then we were, I mean, it's really crazy to think. And again, my memory will be a little bit vague because we're talking close to 20 years ago, but um, we woke up. Our flight was the morning of September 11th back to Los Angeles. So we were up um, packing and a lot of this now makes sense in hindsight. So when we're in the room, I remember feeling kind of like a shake. I, I don't know um you know, I didn't know what it was, but uh, heartbreakingly, it, it likely was the first plane hitting the first tower. Um, and we continued to get ready because we didn't know what was going on. Nothing had really been said yet. I remember looking out the window and I did see some, it looked kind of like chaos. People were moving around, running around, but I didn't know what was happening. I do remember when the second plane hit and we were all packed, the second plane hit, that shook. I remember feeling a pretty strong shake. That one was stronger um, and that was quite surprising. And we wondered what was going on. There was actually construction going on in our hotel. We we thought maybe it was something like that, but it seemed a little strange. Again, I looked outside the window. Um, I couldn't see the World Trade Center. It was probably, I think the other way. I could just see now more people running some people running what now i can recognize was towards the world trade center some people running away i think i was seeing papers flying around like it was it was just a very chaotic scene we didn't know what was going on still um 
Then over the PA of the hotel, they said, everyone, please report to the lobby. And we didn't know what was going on. Right before we get out of the room, um, my mom had been watching the news and she called the room right before we walked out of the room with our bags. Again, we didn't know what was going on. We thought, let's get to our flight. We really were not aware of, obviously, the gravity of the situation. Uh, My mom had called and my brother picked up and she said two planes intentionally hit the World Trade Center. She quickly gave my brother that information saying it was intentional once the second plane hit. They were aware of that. Um, So he came and told us that. And I remember as my brother's coming out and telling us, I was walking to the elevator to go to the lobby and there was a window which i'm sure was in a way designed or maybe obviously just a setup exactly you know creating a frame around the two um towers and they were on fire and uh, i mean i remember that in some ways it looked more fake there than even when you watch it on tv it just did not look real and I even remember, uh, you know, it's almost traumatic and I haven't told this story in a long time. I can feel a lot of feelings as I talk about it. I could still see someone um, jump out, you know, because when the building was on fire and I can still remember seeing him jump out and then his tie flew to the air as he jumped out. And obviously seeing the buildings on fire and then seeing that, um, it, it didn't take long to recognize how serious of a, of a situation this was. And I, and I really couldn't believe it. Again, it looked unreal even uh, up close. So we get in the elevator, go down to the lobby. I remember a woman walked in and she must have been hit by some debris or something because she was kind of holding her head. She was okay. She was standing, but she had a, like a cut on her head or something. And she was kind of talking about what happened. Um, of course, they didn't know that the building buildings would collapse and they're trying to keep everyone calm they were walking around with orange juice trying to make i think everyone feel comfortable everyone's a little bit stressed not sure what was going on um we still again didn't recognize this is a um, you know the two planes hit the towers they're going to close the airports and with all this chaos actually especially especially we thought let's see if we can we need to get on our flight let's get out of here so we still have our bags mind you and we're in the lobby and we're like you know let's just go so we walk out of the building and i remember again it now is even more surreal uh seeing it not but you know not just through the window but from the, the street level and um i remember seeing what i'm pretty sure it might have been body parts on the um, street that were covered by kind of like a almost like butcher paper this white kind of paper you couldn't see it but there's like some blood I mean it it was just um, chaos I remember even seeing a few shoes and like just random things that must have been blown from the blast Um, and we were told to go to Battery Park which was a few blocks away that everyone is being directed that way and so we're walking where we have our bags, our suitcases. We still are thinking somehow maybe we can, you know, get there and then take a cab to the airport. Uh, you know, we were scared. Lots of people are walking. And as we are walking close, now we're in the park, essentially. Um, and I think they wanted us to go to the ferry station. I'm not sure if that they already told us that at this point. And then I remember where we heard this loud sound, very loud, metallic kind of a sound. I remember in the moment being so scared, 
it, you know, it's interesting how quickly your mind could think of something because in a thought, you don't have to necessarily spill, spell it out into words. I remember thinking very quickly when I heard this loud noise that they wanted to wait for all of us to gather in this area and another plane was going to hit all the people here because it was thousands of people gathered in the park that were all being evacuated to this area. Um, and then when that sound started, people started running. People were just sprinting and it was just chaos. Everyone just heard a noise and was running away from um, the noise. We didn't know what it was. I remember my cousin Pedram and I, we actually got behind a tree because I think we both realized we could get like trampled to death. It was just chaotic. So we're behind the tree. My brother was actually running ahead, um, but uh, we're behind the tree. And then the sound, maybe I don't know how many seconds it lasted. It's very hard to 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 keep track of things you know things seem longer and shorter in these types of moments but i don't remember it was maybe several seconds i'm sure and then the sound stopped and then i remember we were like what happened and someone said the top fell off i remember that's what the person said they thought the top of the building had fallen off um we didn't know the whole you know first tower had collapsed and i remember as soon as he said that we saw uh, you maybe saw on the you know all the news coverage like one of those um clouds of dust you know came and it kind of came over us and it did cover us to to a bit a bit to the extent that my brother um i used to not wear gel in my hair that back then my brother did when that night we were in staten island there was still the dust and debris in his hair and even on our suitcases we still had that um and so we had to, we were asked to go into the ferry station we actually i remember telling i don't know if it was police or some kind of law enforcement we have a flight we want to leave and the guy's like no you can't you know you're not going to make that flight go to the uh ferry station everyone has to evacuate manhattan so we went to the ferry station i remember sitting there um you know you see so many it was like so much happening people kept coming into the the ferry station and the more people the later they were coming in the more they were covered in this dust and debris and all that so they were more covered in that and we were just sitting there i remember seeing this very scared young boy maybe he was going to school i don't know how he was you know there he was probably 10 11 and these two kind women and again i'm kind of extrapolating because i don't know the whole scene but they said something like don't worry you're going to be with us we're going to take care of you and it's a reminder that in these darkest moments of humanity uh, we've seen this during coronavirus as well so during dark times but in something like this you also see the most beautiful parts of humanity where from what i could gather these two women who did not know this boy who was crying were comforting him and telling him you're we're going to take care of you you're going to be with us which was very very sweet it kind of makes me want to i'm kind of tearing up as I, I say that but it was very sweet to see uh, this kind of kindness um and, and then i remember sitting in that ferry station and after um you know, a few minutes, the dust seemed to be settling. And then again, this is things I can make sense of afterwards. The dust again got thicker again, or, you know, got more cloudy, which I'm sure was at the second building collapsed from the ferry station. I don't remember hearing that. Um, and then, so we were stuck there and we again, still were thinking, can we make our flight? But it seemed like we can't. And they told us everyone has to evacuate Manhattan. And this ferry was going to Staten Island. We had no, no choice. And so we eventually got on a ferry that was going to to uh, Staten Island from Manhattan. And that image still, I mean, I'm sure I've seen so many pictures of it that it's probably mixed with a lot of different things. But I remember being on that ferry and looking and you could at some point see the Statue of Liberty and just 
where the Twin Towers were, uh, smoke basically just there. And it was just, you know, out of a a horrible movie, you know, kind of an apocalyptic type of movie. Um, So sad, so heartbreaking. But um, that was the reality. And I remember getting to Staten Island. uh, And, you know, as I was saying earlier how angry everyone was i remember we finally got to see now a couple hours later the video of like you know the second plane hitting they were showing on the news over and over again and i remember hearing someone say something like we should just bomb the whole i I forgot what they said bomb the whole middle east or bomb the and maybe some expletives that i can't see on the air and i remember hearing that and i understood that feeling but it's a reminder now it's been 20 years uh, of how people were feeling we were so angry and so hurt and of course our instant reaction to that is is anger understandably so um and, and people had that type of sentiment now we spent a few days in staten island in a hotel that was not prepared to have the influx of people that it had. It was really, I guess, one of the main or bigger hotels there. And so we were there for a few days. Um, Three days after, I believe, 9-11, they opened up the airports again. um, And we were trying to fly back to L.A. On our way to the airport, they... um, told us we got to the airport and they'd close the airport again. What had happened was, I believe it was a group of individuals from, maybe they were from India or maybe somewhere in the Middle East, but they actually got taken off the plane uh, and they were suspected, they they got scared, maybe they're terrorists. And so they, um, they, they told us the airport's closed. And I remember being there and we were like, no, we need to get on our flight. And they said, no, the airport's just closed. Uh, and at that point, the bridges had been opened, which is which was good um, for us, I guess. So we could actually go stay with some family um, for a few days, and we did stay. So finally we got to be with some family after being just the three of us, my brother, my cousin, and I. Um, I really do recognize and appreciate that we had each other because it was a very dark time. I actually remember the night that we finally slept, September 11th. I had some very violent dreams. They weren't of the planes and things, but car accidents and other things, some very violent dreams that were kind of dark. But I do recognize that having each other, um, we were able to keep our spirits as high as we could with everything that was going. We had that camaraderie. We didn't go through it alone. Um, And so I think that was very, very special. And when we look at things like PTSD, uh, you know, trauma affects us in different ways, but um, having support can be very helpful in that way and so thankfully uh, i'm very happy that my cousin pedram and my brother parham we were all uh, together so it, it was pretty heartbreaking and uh, after the break um, i'll share more about that story my own experience of being um, in new york in 9 11 and and trying to get back home uh, let's go to our last commercial break we'll be right back welcome back so um before the break i was sharing my my story of being in New York on 9-11 and of course my story pales in comparison um, to all the heroes um, all the lives that were lost of course of heroes and innocent individuals and families who lost people so I recognize my story Um, I was very fortunate and very very lucky that um, yes I was there and it was was scary for moments but I I was okay and so I do want to recognize, uh, I think, Betty Williams, if she doesn't mind me saying her name during the Instagram live on the commercial break, she shared her cousin was a police officer, died, and so many individuals 
like her cousin, were heroes that were trying to save lives. They ran into the danger rather than running away. And we recognize that. And, and the individuals who try to prevent things like this from happening, like Ali Sufan, um, who wanted to gather intelligence and evidence to prevent this from happening. Even, I didn't mention this, um, you know, he feels that they were doing these interrogations where they maybe could have gotten information to potentially prevent 9-11 from happening, but there was a change in the way they were interrogating and things were happening. And so it's very hard um, for him, I'm sure he was saying, to imagine that you could have done more, but you weren't allowed to or, or that that could not happen. So very, very heartbreaking. But um, going back to um, what I was sharing, as I mentioned, it in some ways relates to the book in, a, in an indirect way. Um, but uh, we were there for a few more days in New York uh, at this point, staying with some family after we could not get to the airport. And so we, um, a few days later, my, my thought is it was September 16th. I think it was the Sunday, um, September 11, 2001, I believe was a Tuesday. And I think this was Sunday. We were finally able to get a flight to New York. I think our flight was like at 5.30 something. We just wanted to be back home, you know, after all this that had happened, uh, be around our, our family and just be back, you know, in home and familiar surroundings. And so we got to the airport. I think our flight again was like at 5.30. You know, for those of us traveling now, it's hard to remember right around then, of course, how things were, but before 9-11, um, how things were. Um, when we traveled, but we didn't know how things would be. I think we got there pretty early. And so we were there early. Our flight, I think, was like 5.30, and we were, we were kind of checking in and doing all that. Someone said, you know, um, you can get on the 4.30 flight. There's a flight, and you're early enough, so let's do that. So we get on that, that flight, and we, we're, we check. Uh, I don't know if we even checked our bags. We carried them on. I can't remember. So we're, we're on the plane. I remember me and my brother sitting together, my cousin sitting in front of us next to a woman, and you could feel the tension and the anxiety. Everyone was still nervous. Again, this is five days after September 11th. And of course, what was used to commit these horrific acts were commercial airplanes. So, you know, there was an anxiety there. And um, my cousin was sitting next to this woman and she was looking outside the window. You can tell very nervous. My cousin Pedram is a very, very kind man. And he was comforting this woman saying, you know, you know, it's okay. I think he was saying things like, oh, they're making sure everything is safe and, and all that, trying to comfort her. Uh, so we're sitting there getting ready to take off. And I remember uh, all of a sudden both aisles of the plane, you know, of this between the seats, the three kind of rows of seats or three sections of seats gets filled with what you can see on the, on the jackets of these individuals was U.S. Marshals. And I see them coming onto the plane. And then one gentleman, I think he had a mustache. That's how I remember him, pointed to me, my brother, my cousin said, you three come with us. And we were shocked. And they said, where, you know, where are your bags? They want us to take everything off the flight. And we were nervous. Actually, my cousin, he pointed to a few different compartments. So they finally found his bags. We took our stuff. And I couldn't believe it. And we're getting taken off the plane by the FBI, who I think were guided by... Um, uh, or aided with the U.S. Marshals. Outside of the plane, like in the area, there was um, a SWAT team. And I remember, I still can remember walking off the plane as someone who I think it was a shotgun and he had these, uh, these I think they're like bullets basically, or, the, you know, these, um, and they were very, very thick red kind of big and later they told us that those kind of that shotgun, it can go through three of those seats and still hit its target. Um, uh, all for me and my brother and our, my cousin. And so we got taken off the plane. I still remember coming off the plane and they were saying, 
our last name on the um, intercom, I think, because they were looking for us. And so we were taken off the plane and they then asked us, what were you guys doing in New York? And then we started talking and then the guy said, stop. And they separated us. So um, the three of us, me, my brother and my cousin, we were separated in the terminal uh, with FBI agents. Each one, essentially, you can say interrogating. I'll be honest, was not like it was really harsh, um, but asking us about just questions that I remember. So I was sitting with this individual um, and they told us, they said later, we had uh, suspicious flight activity since we flew into LA uh, to New York a few days before 9-11 and our flights were scheduled for 9-11. Um, and actually, you know, when I read in the book, there was some, they wanted to have 10 people, maybe 10 planes. They wanted to do different things. So I'm sure they they were looking for that. And because we had switched our flight, um, they said they didn't see us on the flight manifest till we were already on the plane or else I think they wouldn't have even let us on the plane. So that's why I included that that detail of the story. So that's why they had to take us off, I think, from what they, they told us. Um, so uh, they started to ask us, what were you doing in New York? Asking us all sorts of questions. I remember he had my wallet, um, the, the individual who was interviewing me, asking me, like, where do you go to school? At that point, I was in college. Who are your professors? You know, they, I think they want to gather information to check if things add up and what you're saying. So I was sharing this, I'm taking this class, that class, you know, all sorts of random questions. And he had my wallet and this part um, is kind of... Uh, in a way funny in hindsight, but in the moment it scared me. He's looking through my wallet and he um, sees my grandmother, very, very sweet grandmother, had written like a kind of a prayer in Arabic for protection that she always asked me to carry with me and I had it there in my wallet. And so he finds this uh, small, like, you know, piece of paper with Arabic writing and he's like, what's this? And I remember it kind of like freaking out because, you know, everyone knew that it was a Middle Eastern um, group that had committed these acts. So anything in Arabic might make you feel kind of suspicious. And so I was explaining to him, oh, no, it's just, uh, you know, my grandmother gave me this. It's just a prayer saying, protect me. And I think when I said protect me, you know, he maybe thought, well, what does that mean? Protect me, protect me while I do something bad. Or I'm, and I was like, no, no, protect me while I'm away from home. Um, you know, so I get home safely. I kept emphasizing getting home safely, that I'm okay. Nothing happens to me. But anyway, so they um, interviewed us separately for a little while. I think maybe an hour, two hours. I don't remember the exact amount of time. Once they'd finished interviewing us and they had to get security clearance or do background checks. Now, me and my brother were born in the United States. My cousin was not. So they said that was taking longer to get his clearance. So for a little while after they um, interviewed us, we got to talk to these, um, you know, the, the people, the FBI agents who were interrogating us or interviewing us. Again, I should say it wasn't like a hard interrogation. I was not really scared. I do remember coming off the plane very scared. I knew I hadn't done anything, obviously, but it's just a scary feeling. The FBI is taking you off a plane, wants to, to interview you. Um, and of course, suspicious flight activity. And I know it wasn't just suspicious flight activity, suspicious flight activity and being Middle Eastern um, that, you know, of course, contributed to it. Uh, but, you know, even when I say that, I don't have an anger uh, about that. First of all, what I went through was not very difficult. It was, I don't know, one to two hours of, of time uh, there, and they were not harsh with us. There was nothing really bad that happened there. So I don't have this uh, anger, and I can understand, you know, they don't really know yet what the threat is and what it looks like. And so sometimes with that unclear kind of information, you're going to get some false positives or 
think that you know someone might be a threat when they are not. Actually, afterwards, the FBI agents told us as soon as they saw us, you know, they're they're good at reading people or understanding people, and they said uh, we knew you guys were not you know a threat, but they had to go through the, the whole process and interview us, um, and, you know, and all that, and they did. And so it, you know, I remember even at one point, <laughs> you know, I was I was 19 at the time. They asked um, each of us, asked my brother, do you you know, do you have a criminal record? And he said, no, my cousin, do you have a criminal record? And he looked at me and he said something like, I, I know you don't have a criminal record, which I don't know if I should really take that as a compliment or not. Maybe not. Uh, but I was 19. And so it, but it was kind of funny the way he said it. And at that point, they already knew we were fine. They interviewed us. It was pretty obvious that there was no threat there. Um, and so, you know, fa- waited a few hours, finally got the clearance. I'm actually happy because I think for a while they held our plane, but I don't know how weird that would have felt to um, get back on that plane after they took us off probably wouldn't have been a good idea I can't even imagine what the uh, lady that would have been sitting next to my cousin would be thinking that we get back on the plane so anyway we get on this next flight was the last flight and so we get through that the FBI agents say okay well you know we talked for a little while and that was it and then they said goodbye and we uh, you know we get on the flight I remember um, we get our tickets for the flight. We're like, okay, here we go. And then the, the woman had seen what happened, but she, you know, she came up to us, the woman at the gate and she's like, oh, you know, there's been a mistake. And we were like, oh my goodness, we just wanted to get home, you know, already five extra days of all this, the the stress and obviously everything about um, 9-11, the pressure that everyone was going through, but we were feeling as well, getting taken off the plane, all this. We just wanted to get home. So when she said there was, there's a problem with your tickets, we we're like, here we go again. And we knew this was the last flight back to LA that night. Um, but then she came back with business class tickets. So I guess that's the, the personal semi, you know, kind of like the, the, the story doesn't end all bad. Um, and I was actually the only time I'd ever flown business class or not coach. So that was nice. I think she saw what we went through that we were taken off the plane and, um, you know, finally we were able to get back on. And so she, she upgraded our tickets. And so then we got on the plane, got back home and, uh, was so happy to be back. You know, home is not just about a location. It's a feeling you want to feel safe. And after you've felt a threat or you feel something like that or being just close to it, it's nice to be home. But as I said, you know, I was talking about the FBI. And so reading this book is about the interrogations. Um, I neither me, my brother or my cousin, I don't remember any of us being angry about what happened. Clearly, yes, the you can call it racial profiling was was there, but um, it, it was just the the way you know, that it was, it's understandable that they have to be cautious. Again, this is five days after 9-11. I can see that our flight's activity was suspicious. We had flown in a few days before 9-11. We're planning to leave on 9-11, flying from um, uh, New York to LAX. And a lot of the flights were either from Boston to LA or things like that. So it it was understandable. So um, nonetheless, um, it was what it was. And and that's that's what we had to experience. And uh, I do appreciate now when I'm reading this book, I was thinking about those FBI agents. I don't remember exactly what they looked like. I kind of remember the one, like I said, who told us to come with him. He was not any of the ones that interviewed us. But I, I you know, when I look back, I say, you know, the job that they have is to try to prevent these types of murders from happening. And so it's a very tough job and they don't know. And of course you have to sometimes um, talk to certain people that maybe have nothing to do with it or 
are not at any way guilty, but that makes sense. You can't be right every time. If you're suspicious, there might be some of that happening. Uh, but also, I was grateful reading this book, looking at you know Ali Sufan and how he approached his work, and not only that it was um, you know more humane, but even gets more information that way. And in interviewing, interrogating people, what he calls, I think, an intelligent interrogation approach, something like that, where you approach it in a way that um, you are, are trying to get information from them and first you connect with them. Even at one point, you know, he talks about how um, he was letting people ha- or helping them call their families uh, or shared a story with one brother about how his brother was able to call his mom and how much that meant and that made the person cry and uh, he started opening up or sharing things. And, and so I, I was really impressed and uh, to me, Ali Sufan is an American hero for what he did and there's so many other individuals who uh, we don't know about, who do things to help take care of us, protect us, but we don't really know their stories. And in this case, I'm very happy that Ali Sufan got to share his story. He also shares the stories of others um, who are involved in trying to prevent things from happening and from trying to get some, some type of justice. But but to me, uh, reading this book, I was reminded of my own very brief experience uh, in realizing the kind of work that that people in in the intelligence agency, the FBI and also uh, CIA have to do. And I do want to lastly, to conclude the show, um, recommend this book uh, from Ali Sufan, because I think it'll open your eyes to what's happened and what's going on. I think a lot of the misinformation that torturing and waterboarding helped get good intelligence, it still pervades. Even I wasn't sure. I think in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, it makes it appear that by waterboarding and doing the torture, they got evidence to save lives. And it appears that that at all, that not at all is the case. That is not actually um, what happened. The information that was really gathered was gathered in the types of approaches that, that Ali Sufan used. Torture does not work. And torture makes us look bad and act bad in ways that will hurt us in the future, also in the moment that we're doing it. And so I think it's very important to to gain that truth of what has happened. And as I mentioned before, we can only learn lessons from history when we have an accurate picture of what happened. And in this book, he does a great job of outlining um, that. So that brings us to the end of tonight's show again. the book was The Black Banners Declassified by Ali Sufan. I hope you'll check it out. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Happy New Year, everyone. Look forward to being with you in 2021. I'll, I'll be with you on Wednesday. Have a good night. <laughs>